what's up, Brad? Long day at work? How you feeling? Yeah. Dirt under your fingernails? Dirty. Tired. What'd you work on today? Anything fun? I worked on making cubes. That's all I'm allowed to say. I've signed a deal. Uh, oh, you can't <laughs> tell me what's inside the cube? They're very small. They go together. Is it blow children's minds? It Well, it's good. It's going to be cool. It's a good theme this year. I'll tell you when I can, but I can't tell you right now. So oh, That's cool. I was just reading in a in an article before we popped on that the uh, free community college is out of the deal, out of Biden's deal. No, no free community college. Freak? Sorry, progressives. Freak community college. Yeah, freak community community college only for freaks. <laughs> oh. That would have been, I would have got a full ride. Full ride. <laughs> that's, that's where I finally would have gotten my degree. You could have, you could have been, you would have got a, an honorary degree. <laughs> you know, I, do you know, I haven't really, really graduated anything since middle school. Really? You didn't graduate high school? I eventually did, mm. but I didn't on time or, you know, have right. like the celebration. Right. Yeah. So the last time, and I remember when I graduated eighth grade going into freshman year, I graduated. I got a robe, the whole thing. My my father drove us up to Cooperstown to see Baseball Hall of Fame and then also Niagara Falls. Wow. It's a strange trip. Partially strange. One of the things he said to me was like, I think this might be the last time you'll graduate something. So we should sell. Oh. <laughs> but, eh, you know, kind of <laughs> prophetic. Oh, kind of prophetic. It actually was. It actually was. Well, here's what I don't understand. Right. I The one thing I'll never understand about the American political discourse as it stands is poor Republicans. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing I don't get. Yeah. The rich people, rich pricks who are just like, yo, this, I made this and it's mine. Like, even though I don't agree wholeheartedly, I understand which interests, you know, they're, they're voting for. They're like free community college yep. for the peons yep. to get educated like us. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I hate it and it's mean, but I get it. There's yeah. all these just poor people out there who could really use community college for free. I could have used free community college. It really would have been awesome. I maybe would have fucking graduated something if I had free community college, yeah. you know? No, it's a, it's a fucking, it's a no brainer. It's what civilized societies do. And you know, both of my parents went to city college in New York for free. Oh, really? Yeah. They're from poor neighborhoods in New York. My mom from from uh from Queens, Brooklyn originally, my dad in the Bronx, and they met whatever criteria you had to meet at the time and went to CCNY for free. And my dad wound up, you know, through the years eventually getting a doctorate and stuff. And it's like there's those simple like A to B things that you can see is like Oh yeah. Absolutely. If that free college isn't there, maybe he doesn't do that. And maybe I don't get to fucking dick around through my 20s <laughs> and try to play music. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's these 
these obvious uh, upsides to spending our money elsewhere, you oh, know? Huge upsides because, you know, we end up with, we don't have a labor force. We don't have the minds. We don't have the bodies that like, you know, in trade schools as well, like they should have, you know, we need more trade schools. Places so like what, Canada. What is it about? It's have, just about guns, God, and... Glory. Is that it? <laughs> just guns and God? I mean, it. to your point though, like it's, yeah, it's the most frustrating, the most frustrating thing about that, about, about conservatism is that like since the 80s, it has just been a case of the turkeys voting for Thanksgiving over and over and over again. It's like, it's, you're, I mean, as when it comes to, yeah, like disenfranchised or poor Republicans, it's like, it's literally, they're voting for the the people who just want to just completely rape and abuse them in every possible way. And, and they, and then and they don't really hide it. <laughs> I mean, like, they're like, yeah, we're out to grab as much as we can for the wealthy. That's what we do. Like ah. they don't deny it. They don't hide it. They don't come up with like fake plans for the poor. They're like, fuck the poor. And we're going to lube our buddies up with as much grease I, as we can. You know what? I, I the thing I think we're missing here is that it's not fuck the poor. It's let's it's like if we're able to convince half the poor that guns and God right. are way more important than this other stuff. If right. we can keep them like scared enough yeah. that, you know, like the government's gonna collapse and it's gonna be uh, you know, some post-apocalyptic movie soon where we're all going to need munitions in our bunks right? or, you know, the people who will just vote like pro-life and nothing else. Like there is, there is some of that. You like, are correct that it is often a just, very, it, like a, a one and, subject sort of vote. Well, and that's, that's the idea is they're always spinning that narrative to, to make them care about that while they ignore what's going on in the top part. That's kind of manipulating the whole thing. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's uh, there's what that one line in gangs in New York. He's like, can't you uh, isn't it what you always say? You hire one half the poor to kill the other half, you know, <laughs> like that's that's what they think. That's where I wish, you know, I we were so much closer to the to the guns and God people than we are the fucking elite, like, you yeah, know, yeah. country club, like those people. I have no idea what their life is like. No. It's way out of my, you know, conception altogether. Mm -hmm. I know what the guns of God. I've been through this country. I've don't have a lot, of, you know, grew up with a lot of people who didn't have a lot of money, like through I know what it's like. Yeah. And uh yeah, like I get it. And it's just these little things. I don't get the other side. That's the one that scares me with the ones who drink baby's blood right yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> great you... intro for dan <laughs> talk about babies Get yeah political nice we, little political intro for dan we, we haven't done this we in got a all while, this you know? we got all this bullshit out of the way so that you can enjoy the dan ozzy interview which has like none of this yeah. in it <laughs> you know it's it's in an interesting uh a little experiment here with going off track i think our intros were like this a lot going off track when we first started back and, and we were still full on in the, uh, you know, 
kind of in a very politically volatile right. climate. Right. And we've relaxed. We've started talking about bullshit again. Right. So, so sorry there's, I got there's your bull- dose. <laughs> sorry I got you worked up. You're all dirty, unshowered, mm, yeah. worked hard all day, gristled, <laughs> fingernails, probably listening to Tim Barry records all day, salt of the earth. And you got to <laughs> listen to me. Listen to me speed off. The liberal elite. You know? uh, yeah, exactly. Where's this nepotism, man? You know, I there's probably half this country probably thinks like I'm on some sort of like Jewish Illuminati payroll, you know, and like <laughs> if they already think that, like, give me some of the nepotism. I don't get any of it. I got no <laughs> Jewish hookups, you know, like. <laughs> The Jewish coin, that's the yeah. secret treasure that's, it. that's doled that's out it. to the Hebes. I, listen, I can tell, <laughs> I'll just put it out there flatly. If there's any, there's any white Jewish people gold. listening <laughs> who just have any inkling that this exists, I can at least with wholehearted assurance tell you no one from me or my semi-white trash Jewish family <laughs> knows anything about it. So it either doesn't exist or we just like didn't make the rolls for some reason, you didn't, know? Didn't make the cut, dude. We didn't make the cut. I don't know. Maybe Dan. Dan's out in L.A. now. Yeah. He's writing books. He's got publishing deals and stuff. So he's... He's living the high life. Maybe he'll have some hookups for me soon, you know? Oh, yeah. Maybe so. We can all work for Dan. Dan, that was a great conversation we had. It was like flowing and vast and talked about so much music. And mm. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed his book too. I'm not going to lie and said I read the entire thing in a week, but I read close to half mm-hmm. and some of the chapters I was really invested in band wise. And it's really like, um, it's a super detailed tale. And I think just because Dan's been so close to music for so long, he's just talks about the things you kind of like want to know about yeah, you know? and yeah. gets right to the, the meat of these situations. And I learned a lot about bands that I love that I didn't really even know their backstories at the drive-in in particular. That was like, they're like a unicorn band to me who I saw once when they were small and then they blew up and then they broke up and I loved them dearly, but never really knew a thing about them. So can't wait to read the rest of it. And uh, I truly thank Dan for taking the time to speak to us for a long time. What does an engineer do about You bugs? did it. You logged off and you came back and it's all good. Everything's it's good. always the trick, isn't it? <laughs> I remember when I had my old, my old office job and I'd always hit up the IT guy. I'd be like, so, all right, I already turned it on and off. What's next? He's like, that's it. That's all you do. He's like, that's it. Yeah, that's what they taught me in school. <laughs> I have a funny story about having to see the IT guy advice when I had like a computer problem and I yeah. like emailed him and he was like, yeah, man, just bring it down. And I was like, okay, cool. But I didn't know what he looked like. And so I looked him up on like Facebook or something like that. And like when I came downstairs, I like, he was like, yeah, I don't know. My computer's messed up. And he was like, all right, let's take a look. And he opened it and it was just a picture of him ah! on, on the screen. And I was like, uh, uh, that was for uh, research. <laughs> Uh, sorry, bro. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Did you have drinks? <laughs> yeah, no, we smoothed it out. He gave me more pictures of himself that I asked for. 
And where does that relationship stand today, Dan? <laughs> you know, we've we've parted ways. Yeah. I'm sorry to say, but uh, you know, I'll never forget him. I'll never forget that picture. Yeah, I mean, a relationship built on that. I guess it wasn't built to last. Yeah. Well. <laughs> so what's up, right. Dan? How you doing, Nothing man? Nothing much. Thanks for thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm glad. Uh, I tried to interview you like three months ago, and you're like, please. Somewhere around the time of the Saving them all up, yeah. Yeah. I was told I didn't have to do any over the summer. Let me ask you something. Yeah, lay it on me. The expo, it says sell by on a gal, like a thing of milk. Yeah. What's your rule as far as drinking it? Is that, is the sell by date the last date that you'll drink it? Or will you drink it? How far after the sell by date will you drink it? I got to be honest, I follow my nose. Yeah. Yeah. See, I. I thought I could do, get away with that too. And I like had milk today that uh-huh. had only the sell by date was two days ago. Uh-huh. And I gave it a smell and it was fine. And I have just been not feeling good all day. Oh, thanks a lot. Really? The hell yeah. Mm. Two days. And this is stomach related milk. Yeah. Related. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Got that, all Tommy's eggs today. That gives me pause. Well, you policy. know what? No, but I, I think you're right. You, <laughs> I, if it passes the sniff test, it's fine. I just don't know why that was just like a... Because when they say sell-by, they're assuming that people will be using it for the next like week or yeah. so. Yeah. I don't get because it. Because of historical precedents, my assumption is that they're lying to a degree. Right? Oh, like, for sure. Yeah. You know, they're like... If they can make a little extra money tricking me by using a phrase like sell by and drink by, which I think they do, mm. uh, you know, so, so there's like built in mistrust here. That's why for sure. I, that's I why think I that, use the nose. I test. think that anything printed on a milk carton is a lie. I don't think any of those kids are missing. I think that, I think that's just total BS. Was that scare tactics to just like get us to to? come home early at night and not push curfew and stuff? I think that's what it was, yeah. yeah. The, the more you're inside drinking milk, the less <laughs> likely you are to get kidnapped. Wait, there. so let's go a step further. Does that mean soul asylum are agents of the U.S. government? You know, that video made, I know, like I got the message that they were trying to send, but that they made that candy look so good. <laughs> Like I, I watched that video as a kid and I was like, if this guy rolled up with that, like, those kind of like sun kiss candies. I'm, yeah. I'm getting in, dude. I, I don't know. <laughs> so it was almost like the dare program. Like it was meant as a cautionary tale, but it just really gave you a taste. But, you it, but it backfired. Yeah. yeah. Cause I was like, well, but, but then it was like, if, uh, you know, like it, it scared me away from getting in the car with people with candy, Right. but they didn't specify, like if a guy came up with video games, I'd be like, well, it's not candy. So I guess this is fine. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's forever changing. Uh, what Jack the Ripper used grapes, you know? Yeah. Like, what would lure you into a car these days? Like, it's <laughs> something that like you just couldn't say no to. I think if it was like, oh, you don't have to drive, I'd be like, sweet, okay, <laughs> great, <laughs> awesome. Here, I'll give you a ride. Oh, awesome! Yeah, because <laughs> gas is la- expensive. So, when's the last time you've listened to a Soul Asylum record? You know what? You're right. Not very recently. <laughs> <laughs> but I do that candy, that picture, the mental image of that candy is 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 ingrained in me. <laughs> ingrained. I I get the soul asylum. It, it maybe does, it doesn't hold up great. Okay. Oh really? I, mean, I only Just remember for, that one song. I didn't think so. Ah. I didn't think. You know. You know what? It's it's pre Pro Tools, dude with a limited voice kind of thing. You know, like 
This is this is what modern technology was made for. Yeah. <laughs> so, Dan, how are you? I mean, except for that milk thing, I'm pretty great. Yeah, so a little <laughs> sick and been great. How's your uh like COVID experience been in the last Oh, it's great. Man. 18 <laughs> yeah, months. it's like it's so wonderful. I mean, but listen, <laughs> you finished a book. Uh, you yeah. know what? You like I, like it sounds like there's some silver linings if we I, look for I, them. That's why yes, I asked. I've been trying to <laughs> see the silver linings and honestly like if you had come to me yeah. before the pandemic and were like, you know, look, there's going to be a year of your life that's basically going to be fucked and you can't do anything. Uh, which year would you want to pick? I would probably pick the time in which it actually was because okay. like that was when I really had to hunker down um, to write. And so it kind of, I don't want to say helped, but it definitely like aided my focus and that like I couldn't, you know, like sometimes you're like, oh, I should really write tonight. And then your friend's like, hey, you want to go see Fast and the Furious and right. 18? And you're like, yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. But, you know, I couldn't do that. So I just like hat was just forced in and I got my work done amazingly on time. And then like when I finished it was kind of when they were rolling out the vaccines and things were looking better for like live events. And I'm, I have to in-person book events uh, in next month, which is amazing because I just watched these poor authors who had to do these virtual events over the last year. And it just, so like, yeah, I don't want to say that the pandemic was good for me, um, but if if I had to choose when I would inflict that upon my life, I guess I would take it when it came, you know? Okay. What's your, uh, what's your situation out there? Like um, where are you living in town? Do do you live with, with with people you have pets are you a a man on his own out there yeah i'm like a i'm like a pretty much my dream scenario where i'm just like a recluse <laughs> um i live in what is essentially like a treehouse uh Whoa, really? yeah that makes it sound uh like I'm roughing it. I'm not. I'm talking to you on my Wi-Fi. I have another Wi-Fi network downstairs. Like, um, like, like more of a glamping tree. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just, it's just. I have this like little space up uh, in the trees, and I just write here, and it's very nice. And I live in this like uh, this neighborhood called Glendale, which is, oh yeah, um, you know, very Armenian and very like neighborhoody. Yeah, and it's great. It's it's great. I love it. That's awesome. I I actually, it's funny. I had, I got saved by somebody uh, uh, to not challenge those Armenians that you're talking about. Yeah, they're, they're, you know, like growing up in a very like uh, antagonistic Italian American community, I think kind of prepared me. Right. Um, right. For the Armenians. (laughs) One of the first days I moved into the, that I moved in to this neighborhood, I like signed up for the gym and I went to the gym and I was like working out and among all these like other Armenian guys Uh and this, um, these two teenage kids, like these two young kids thought it would be funny to hit the switches for the lights in the weight room. Oh, shit. And like within a second of the lights going out, you just heard like, hey, motherfucker, put that back on. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm used to this. I'm used to this kind of attitude. Yeah, for sure. it felt strangely familiar. <laughs> just the lights just like flipped on and the kids just ran away, you know? Yeah, I, I played a venue once called The Scene Bar. I have no idea if it's still there in Glendale. I've and, never heard of it, but and, okay. And right next to it was... 
like a very big open parking lot with, you know, four luxury black cars sitting in it. But we were not allowed to put the van in there, even though it was like literally next to the building. And you know, there was yeah. a few guys hanging out in there and stuff. And I'm like telling the, I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to go speak to him. Like, like, you know, see if we can get this like figured out. The guy's like, no, <laughs> like grab my shoulder, like pull me. He's like, please don't talk to those guys. It's bad news here. They don't like the bar. And I'm like, okay, okay. We'll park on the street. I get it. Yeah. Oh, don't those, fuck with the Armenians. Okay. It's Glendale has like the highest insurance rates uh for cars in los angeles is that right yeah because like i Arme- it's so funny because the other part of like uh, glendale it's like armenians and then like liberal white people who are like low-key racist about armenians <laughs> <laughs> but so um, oh, i forgive me if this sounds like i'm generalizing about the armenian population here but um <laughs> it's like a big car uh culture here for right. sure and it's right. crazy because like you'll see like a little house that's just like a, I, I don't know what it looks like inside, but probably just like a little one bedroom place, you know, in Glendale. And then there's like a $90,000 Tesla parked in front. Right. Like the priorities are so weird because they're just like so into their, their car culture here. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. And you, do you have a car? Yeah, I have a car. It's not a Tesla. I just have a regular <laughs> Honda. Regular old but, Honda. Dude, oh man, when I first moved here, yeah. um, I was driving around and I saw a Tesla and I looked up how much it was later and it was $70,000 uh-huh. and it had a dead Kennedy sticker on the back. Wow. And that like, was just the funniest sticker that could possibly be on a Tesla. It was so good. It's probably just like w- one of the people you, you talk about in your book, you know? Some former, uh, yeah, they didn't know what else to do with their money. Who, yeah, uh, yeah. sold into a major or a hedge fund or something. So funny. It's like, look, I'm still here. I'm still here. Yeah, I'm still punk. Yeah, holiday in Cambodia, bro. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad. So when you were holed up in your place in your treehouse, which I mean, I'd love to know more about. Even yeah, that you live up in the sky in the trees. It sounds great. Um, was you know by the time COVID hit, h- had you been already? pretty well past like research interview stage or did you still have more like legwork to do um well i woke up on uh, the first day of 2020 like literally i had been out at a, a new year's party the night before and then i woke up the morning of the first and like i just woke up th- to the thought of like oh fuck i'm not gonna make my deadline because i had like a year oh. to write this book that i really I think at that point I had maybe written one, one and a half chapters or so. Okay. Um, and I was just, I, I mean, that's like, what is that? Like 10% of the book, you know? And I was yeah, just I mean, like. 11 chapters. Yeah. yeah. I had done, I like, I spent the first year doing like a lot of interviews and stuff. Right. And like, I went to a bunch of festivals to meet people. I went to shows. I went all around to like interview people. Um, I didn't, I definitely didn't get all of them done, but I definitely gave myself a good head start. And I was like, Oh, in the, in this next year, I'll, I'll write, I'll do a lot of writing. But then the second year, like I was just crunching the numbers and I was like, I'm not going to make this. Like, even mm-hmm. if I can bang out a chapter a month, that's like a crazy pace, no breaks. Um, and I, and I'm, I need to, to barter, you know, I need to like budget some time for mental breakdowns. I'm just not going to make this. And, um, but like weirdly, like I just, again, I had nothing else to do. And so I just spent 2020, the entirety of it, like I couldn't, 
I didn't go back home to see my family for like the holidays or anything like that. So I just kept writing. Um, You know what it really reminded me of? There's this episode of The Simpsons, Bart gets an F where um, he is going to fail the, the, he's going to fail the fifth grade. Yeah. And so unless he passes this test and so he like, begs he like prays to god like for a miracle like a a (laughs) hurricane a blizzard anything whatever and he gets a blizzard but then like he still doesn't want to study like he just wants to go outside and that's what it felt like to me i was just like oh i need more time i need more time and the universe was like here's all the time you could ever possibly want you're saying you prayed it's my fault (laughs) sorry (laughs) but i did yeah Be like what? It's like uh, like close encounters. Like you just keep writing the name Wuhan, and you have no idea why. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I brought it upon us. Yeah. I don't know. I'm sorry. So wh- when you're when you're doing that, I mean, you know, I'm reading the book, and one thing that you know pops out to me fairly early on is like this is a lot of stuff. <laughs> like like I'm reading quotes from like. So I wish I would have hit you up. I could have put that on the back of the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, this is a lot of stuff. <laughs> Betty, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, so I can't help but think of, like, how much source material this must have come out of, like, you know, hours of interviews and, and things like that. Like, what's your what's your process for dwindling that down? And is there, like, a very set... Uh, you know, a rule or barometer for for what you know makes it and doesn't make it. Yeah, oh, my process. Oh, thank you for asking. No, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good question. And like, probably the only thing I remember from college and like learning about writing mm. was you got to know when to murder your darling. So you know, mm. like, there's some shit that you love and. So sometimes you got to know just that you got to let it go. And if you have a good editor, which I did, you know, she, she was really good at like pointing those out. But to me, yeah, like there was so, so much material that probably could have gone in, um, but I had to get cut. And to me, like I look at it as like anything that doesn't serve the, the larger purpose has got to go. And, you know, sometimes you let yourself get hung up on things you really like. Um, but right. if it's not serving the overall vision, it has to go. Um, I was reading this book that put it well, where they were giving this example about like a, a, a teacher in a, like a photography class. Mm-hmm. And this one student brought in this picture of like a mountain, like a landscape or something okay. like that, like a high up picture of a landscape. And, you know, everybody had to bring in their portfolios and the professor would judge their work. And the professor's looking through this guy's photos and he's like, yeah, this one's good. This one's good. This mountain one is not very good. You should ax this one. Just cut it. And then like three months later, they all had to bring their portfolio in again. And he brought in the photo again. And he's like, yeah, this photo, cut it. Like it's not not doesn't belong here. And then he brought it in a third time. And the professor was like, well, I keep telling you like this photo does not belong in your portfolio. Like, why do you keep bringing it? And the photographer was like, because I had to climb a mountain to get it. 
And so I, I think of that right. all the time. Like, you know, yeah, sure. I don't give a shit that this guy climbed a mountain. I just care about whether it's a good photo. And so like, there were right. a bunch of things where I was like, I had to track this person down. You don't understand. Right, right, and, right. You know, but it's I like, well. I had to fly to Texas. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's like, well, do we need, th- th- does it belong in there? Right. Um, so yeah, that that's that's what I always keep in mind. Like if it's not serving the purpose, it's just got to go. So that being said, like when you're when you're thinking in that regard, uh, what is like you know the purpose you keep reminding yourself of, or the story arc that you like want to stay inside of? Um. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I don't I don't know like what the overall arc was, but just totally demystifying my process here for you, um, <laughs> being because you're my friend. I I tried to break this. Each story I tried to break down. I mean, I don't know if anybody will actively notice this, but just to help with my pacing, when I was writing it, I just took each chapter and I was like, this each chapter is going to be three acts. The first act is just um, a a band on the rise, you know, like um, Uh getting more attention. The second act is like, oh, uh, they're getting attention of major labels. Um, And then the third act is like, okay, they now have put their major label album out. What happens? So, um, because like all all of the stories are like that um, and they fit into that. So if it didn't fit into that, those like three acts for any reason, that was a pretty good indicator that I could probably lose it. Hmm. Um, That said, man, like I have to say, I don't think that I cut that much stuff out of it. Okay, Um, There were like two sections that I can think of that my editor convinced me to just like shave down. Um, But like, I don't, I really like didn't cut that much out that I wanted you know yeah and how do you do with that stuff are you uh are you a a willful editor or are you you a pain in the ass i I have been a pain in the ass in the past but i think with this one since i trusted my editor so much i was like a lot more relaxed there were like a couple of lines that i fought for um where I thought I, sometimes she would just be like, you, you think you're being clever here, but you're not. <laughs> and right, and right. I'd, I'd cut it. But like, there were some where I'm like, no, 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 that's a good line. We have to keep it. Um, but for the most part, I, I conceded to her because she was right. And the other thing too, about like cutting a good line or whatever it is, is like, you don't really miss it that much, mm. you know, like I, right, I look back at end. it now and I'm like, right. I don't remember what I cut, you yeah, know? Yeah, and yeah. also too, I forgot who I was just talking to the other day, but they said like what they do. And I realized I do this too, which is like the thing that you cut. It, like I put it somewhere. Oh, it was Franz Nikolai who has a great book out called, um, yeah. someone should pay for your pain. He was like, you know, put it in another document or put it at the bottom of the document. So it doesn't feel like you threw it in trash. It's just like uh, in storage or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Like I got um, it hanging out when I need so, it. Yeah. So yeah. you become like a hoarder of your precious <laughs> gems, you know, that's a good way to trick yourself. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I mean, a lot of your, um, what you're talking about does feel similar to, to writing music and honestly, almost specifically for drums. Like, cause mm-hmm. You know, when, you know, you're in that so much of of drums for me is like, just because you can play it doesn't mean you should. Right, right. And and whatever you have to do to like service that thing that you're working on in that moment is what belongs there. And because ultimately you want to you want a good song. It doesn't. Right. You don't want to write a best the best like 
drum fill or whatever, you like it's overall the people are going to remember the song. So if something's distracting from that, yes, uh, it doesn't seem to make sense to have it in there. Yeah, don't bore us. Get to the chorus. <laughs> Less discussion, more percussion. That's it. That's funny. That was always my favorite thing to shout when you would go see like the locust or something and they were taking too long between songs you know i mean that was part of the shtick though like yeah yeah yeah. man that was funny because like when i don't understand how that even started with them you know like it wasn't like they even occur it encouraged it yeah you know like i I don't know like why did people just start heckling the locust i guess if somebody gets up and like masks and costumes like that you've got to assume that they have some self sense of self-awareness yeah. You know, maybe. I don't there was, know. There was some of that going on in those days. It was like some, yeah. Yeah, it was, we were, ha- we hazed I, bands more, I feel. I remember Rye, Rye Coalition kind of had that vibe. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be like a little manic and people would be yelling at each other. World Inferno sort of did that early on. Let's bring that back. Let's start heckling. Yeah. <laughs> I like the reverse antagonism. It kind of, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like. What is this modern world where we just have to be nice to our fans? What am I, fucking just, Derek Jeter, you know? We like, just applaud. <laughs> also, too, here's another thing, too. Yeah. And you know who I'm talking about when I say, okay. when I refer to people like this. Okay. There's a lot of, like, front people who do their stage banter uh-huh. between songs, and they get some laughs and some chuckles, and it's not that funny. Like, you know, if they weren't holding a guitar, we wouldn't be laughing at them. That's like pretty bad open mic shit, you know? <laughs> but like, oh, because they're primarily a musician, we got to laugh that they made an attempt at a joke. I don't like it. I'm not laughing anymore. I think it sets up the room, you know, the same way, like, like some comedians talk about that. They're like, yeah, like, it's easy to make people laugh. Like, they came here to laugh and they're drunk. And this is an easier group to make laugh than any other group you can be met with, you know? So I can imagine any singer up there uh, speaking to their adoring fans. It's it's almost like when, um, you know, when you're, you're dating someone you really like and they're, you're, they're like, oh, yeah, I did this. And you're like, yeah, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> you know, like you want, yeah. you want to make people feel good. Well, <laughs> I'm tired of making people feel good. Yeah. Well, you I had, mean, and the worst part of it, there was no touring for a year. So you, I'm, I'm, you had a year to come up with material. Oh, right. Make me should, laugh now. It should be fresh. Yeah, <laughs> this should be good. You had a year to come up. I understand you're on the road. You don't have that much time to just, you know, get some material together. But now we, you've been home for a year to write in between song banter. Like let's fucking up the game here. So let, let's get, I mean, it's <laughs> funny. Let's talk about you and your uh, penchant, let's say for ruffling feathers at times. <laughs> like, Oh no. I mean, you like it. Like, like it's, you know, well, uh, I feel like you and I come from that world of like, yeah. East sure. coast, uh, you know, like, but, but in a, in a friendly way, like, you know, ball busting, ball busting. Yeah, exactly. Bu- the thing that people in LA don't understand. That's probably why you're it's, alone in your tree. House. It's crazy. Yeah. It's <laughs> ball busting is so much more prevalent on the East coast for sure. So let's, I want to get back into that a little, cause you're, you're from a unique place. Mm. Um, you know, to the, like, to the point, sometimes when I do this show, you know, I, I'll, someone will be from somewhere funny. I'll be like, let me come up with a little local quiz for them. Like, 
Like, do they know? <laughs> I just did it okay. last week with Chris McLean. I gave him a, a quiz of Columbia, South Carolina. Let's see. Like, let's <laughs> see if you know. And I go to do the same thing for you. Honestly, there's not an article on the internet that has fun facts about Staten Island. Because it's not a fun place. <laughs> like, you'd think, like, someone somewhere through the course of time found five and put it in a fucking Word document somewhere. But it uh, fun, be- fun fact about Staten Island, a, a police officer there choked out Eric Gardner until he died over his cigarette. Wow, what a fun fact. Like, what are you I mean, going to... Like, you're going, Island, you're going yeah. there instead of, like, the ferry... Wu Tang Clan, yeah, like yeah. largest garbage dump Pete visible Davidson. from space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like there's CR. Um, Ooh, if we want to talk about CR, I mean, okay, of course we'll get to CR. <laughs> but so you're from this really unique place, which, in a way, like as you just sort of define, kind of like is a testament to to part of your personality. You know, um, but like, what what was it? What was your background like? Um, you know. What, what did your parents do for work? Like, were you into music young? Did did you have music at the house? Like, what was going on in Staten Island? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, my parents were respectively. My mom was a uh, teacher, and my dad was a lawyer. Okay, and um, you know, I had like a pretty pretty good like upbringing on Staten Island. I went to Catholic school because. My parents were really like my mom. Just being a teacher um, was really invested in education. Did she and, teach in Staten Island? Yeah. Mm, okay. And she was like, uh, so she was like really invested in education. And she, I, I was like a, um, I, I've normaled out since, but I was like a freak, uh, like child prodigy when I was a kid. Like, oh really? Well, I was an only child until I was like six and a half, and. My, you know, I just got like all of my mom's attention. And again, my mom mm-hmm. just being an educator, she right. taught me how to read at like three. Like I okay. was like reading before anybody else in my class. Um, so yeah, so that's, that was like being very young. Um, yeah. but it's not like uh, not a musical family. Like my parents had records in the house that I remember, like Beatles and Springsteen primarily. Um, but like, it wasn't like nobody played an instrument or anything. So did you um, kind of have like a, like an early, like literary passion instead? Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I did, I really, I legitimately thought books were fucking cool when I was a kid. And <laughs> I, I, uh, you know, there was this, I'm forgetting his name, Lewis Stevenson. I'm forgetting his name, but there was this guy who like wrote these kids books, um, that I liked so much. It was like, I, this guy like telling his grandchildren about his childhood. And so in it's like illustrated and in the illustration, he has like, he's a little boy, but he has a little mustache. Cause he's like, it's, it's funny. Um, but I was like obsessed with him. And I, huh. my mom like helped me write a letter to the author and oh, cool. like, he wrote me back. Like he wrote wow. me like a little illustration that said like, thanks Dan or something like that. And I thought it was the coolest shit How ever. Cool. Like I really, I bet my mom still has it. Yeah. Nice. I bet she definitely does. Um, but I was just like so, uh, so invested in books as a kid. And also, too, you know, like, not to sound like an old man, but there was like pre internet. Right. And right. I was just, uh, you know, like in school, I doubt they even do this anymore, but maybe you remember this shit. They had like 
scholastic, like once a year, yeah. they had like the scholastic book fair. The book fair, I fucking love yeah. the book fair. Clean and they up. had like that circular too, remember? Yeah. Or whatever uh-huh. it was called. It's like, uh, yeah. you know, you bring it home, you convince your mom right. to give you like 12 bucks and then you can send away for a book. And then and the they books all come. were cheap. Yeah, the books were, you know, they were yeah. like just scholastic books. So yeah, uh, yeah I was like, that was like uh, exciting for me, cool. <laughs> sadly. And I mean, were you uh, like a, a social kid or or were you kind of leaning already towards like being more comfortable with yourself? Uh, no, I, I think like I, especially like not ha- like I, so I was, like I said, I was an only child until I was six and a half. And then I had like a sister. So I had like a sibling who was much younger than me. Mm. And so I do think that like being an only child put, not that it made me like socially awkward, but I definitely like got jealous. Like I wished that when I was younger that I had little, like I had brothers because like if my friends would go skateboard without me, I would get very jealous. Like mm. I'm really glad that I did not grow up at a time when there was like Facebook or whatever. Cause if I saw oh. my friends hanging out without me on Instagram or whatever, that would have made me really jealous as a kid. Uh-huh. Now I'm like, I just need my alone time and I don't give a fuck with my friends. You know, right, if my right, friends right. are going out, I'll catch them the next time. <laughs> yeah, totally yeah, fine. Um, <laughs> but like when I was a kid, I was like really hurt by that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know? Um, and I was like, you know, social, like it was fine, like hanging out with boys in school and I did like sure, sure. sports and shit like that. Um, but you know, like I do feel like looking back, I was like an insecure boy for mm. a while, you know? Hmm. Interesting. And what, like what, um, what was your first connections into, you know, alternative music and, and zines and shows and stuff like that? Um, like zines and shows, like, uh, yeah, it's funny. Cause like everybody, whenever they talk about like, uh, their first music experience, like everybody talks about like, Oh, like my dad took me to see like Van Halen when I was right. 13 or 12, whatever. But like, yeah. I don't really remember having any of those like experiences with like pop music okay um this is i say this totally not for like street cred it's just <laughs> how it happened i just went right into Los DIY Kratos, shows. baby <laughs> yeah. Yeah. well there was like a um there was a venue on staten island that was uh open and it kind of i caught the tail end of its tenure like um it was around for a long time and when i started which, to go which to place it the was joint? called the joint yeah. yeah um and so like the first shows really that i ever went to were there and it was just like a no stage you know like three three inch off the ground little stage and and people selling their own you know like patches and and cds and stuff like that how did you know that was going on like how did you jump from like catholic school book nerd kind of guy to um like heading out to the joint because that wasn't exactly like yeah yeah i think i think the records i had found first like when i was 13 i started getting into like Minor Threat and Fugazi and Dead Kennedys and and just whatever, you know, like intro starter pack for punk, right? Right. And then but, more, um, but the on the more serious side, not the Yeah, like yeah, yeah. I mean I say that to be cool, but I'm sure there were things that were like less cool, but at the time like I just remember like those those were like intro and then I went to sure. high school and then in freshman year, um, you know, you you kind of find the kids who are into like the misfits and the bouncing right. souls and stuff like that. So in freshman year, I was just like meeting new kids in school who were also had like misfits patches on their backpack or whatever. And you become friends. And then we all started going to 
um, going to shows. So that was kind of like how I, like my transition into live music, I feel. Now you love the fanzine. Uh, what, <laughs> do you remember your first zine? Like that I read? Yeah, or like bought or read, yeah. No, I actually don't. I, I like. I get like. I know that it's not um, strictly a fanzine, but I do think that I treated um, like handmade seven inches and stuff that yeah. way because I yeah, would take them sure. home, and you know they would have like the insert booklets inside, and I would just like pour over them. And yeah. I mean, you know how it is. It's like, oh, let me see all of the bands they thanked. Okay, they yes, thanked Spaz. Right. His right. hero's gone. Los Cruz. I'm going to go buy all of these records when I have money, you know? And so, um, and those bands were so good. Like every one of those, like ebullition records had. Yeah. And then like, you got into labels. Sure. Exactly. Thing inside that was telling you everything you need to know. Exactly. Anyway. So yeah. I don't really, it's I don't really have a moment where I felt like my eyes were opened by fanzines, but like right. any inserts that were in huh. records or anything that, like you said, came from a label. Um, I was like devouring that kind of stuff. Inserts you know? don't get enough credit. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, you know, sometimes labels would just stick things in that weren't even part of their, like you said, yeah. like their like little catalog or their like little manifestos or whatever. Um, but it was so eye-opening. I don't know. Have you ever had Chris Gethard on the show? Yeah, yeah. Just a couple months ago. Yeah. Oh, okay. I remember reading his uh, book, the last book that he did, um, Lose Well, I think. Right. Um, and there was a, a, a line in it that made me laugh so much because it was so relatable um, he, I, he was talking about how he went to his like first DIY show in I, probably New Jersey as a kid. And it yeah. felt just very similar. And there's this great line where, um, you know, somebody was just at a merch table selling like cassettes, right. like of their band or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And he went over to them and he was just like, who let you do this? <laughs> you know, like it just getting yeah, like not sure. realizing the DIY ethos of like, you don't have to wait for an adult to like, do shit for you. You can just go and do it yourself. And so like, I feel like I had a very similar, as most kids did, like a very similar aha moment where you just realize like, oh, the music, music is not just like some shady thing that people give you. Mm -hmm. Like you can make it if you want to. Um, So yeah, yeah. I always liked that, that line in that book. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And and even as you say it, I'm like thinking back to a bunch of those records and yeah, there really is such a, more of like a beautiful hand touched stamp. Totally. All fo- than, all like hand photocopied and stapled yeah. and stuff like that. You get for random sure. shit in there. Like be like, why is there like an Andre Dawson baseball card in here? Like, like, right. Yeah, people yeah. are just cleaning out like their kid shit and throwing it in yeah, packages. I love and, it. Yeah. That stuff is great. I still, to this day, like I try not to buy records too, too much anymore. Right. But like, if I find like old hardcore seven inches and stuff, uh-huh. even, and it's funny too, because they're, they're the ones that are, you know, if you go on Discogs, they're like $3, mm-hmm. they're nothing. But if I find something from like New Jersey or New York at that, like the time appropriate seven inches, either on like Ebullition or Mountain or whatever, right. I'll still just buy those now. Yeah. They're so much fun. So you know, it, it's interesting. Like, this is where I find you to be an anomaly a little bit. <laughs> and why okay. I said earlier, you intimidate me. It's true. Um, <laughs> okay. I know I know. it's probably hard for you to believe, Dan, but it's true. Well, um, I would love to hear what precedes this. Well, yes. you're just such a, like, we talk in this way and, like, I'm like, ah, oh, this is like a hardcore kid. You know, unity, like, like the thing we were into in community. But the first thing I knew you as was the Jaded Punk Hulk. That's like right. 
what I knew. And the first person I met, I remember meeting you at, uh, I think, a loved one show at Irving Plaza. Sounds right. That makes sense, right? And and Dave Dave was there, and he's like, "Oh, that's the Jaded Punk Hulk." I'm like, oh, "That's him," you know, because I could never put like the face to the thing, and like, so the thing that's you are kind of like simultaneously like this really like positive unifying guy, but also love to just like stir up shit. Um, like, where does that? How, well, explain to me how that even just started, because I don't even know. Shit talking? No, the the Hulk. Well, everybody thought that was me. Wait, what? <laughs> Shut the fuck I never, up. I never said that it was or it wasn't. Oh, oh, I didn't realize this is Yeah, so- or oh. that I knew who was involved in it or oh, not. Oh man, and- I didn't Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't. I didn't. Oh no, that's oh, funny. I, I just, know. I just, wow. I, I'll, I'll neither dismiss guys. You're gonna have to explain it. what you're talking about because I have no idea. <laughs> All right, so I'll, I'll set it up for you since, uh, since someone's in uh, the wire interrogation mode. Um, <laughs> so what happened was a Twitter account appeared at some point called the Jaded Punk Hulk, right? And Jaded Punk Hulk like to speak to bands and artists on there and kind of say some funny things about their records or what they're up to, but in the, in the Hulk voice and all capitals, Hulk smash, that kind of oh, thing. And, yeah. it, and it became uh, pretty, pretty famous, pretty world renowned. I'd say <laughs> internationally acclaimed all these things. I mean, it's almost the original nihilist Arby's in a way. Um, so, so yeah, I knew Dan at least knew the jaded punk Hulk. I, I heard he was from Staten Island. The, in the way that you would hear that Peter Parker knows the Spider-Man. Right. Right. <laughs> like he can get access to him. Uh-huh. So yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. You're kind of the, uh, J JK Simmons of the whole thing. Just uh, I mean, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Well, <laughs> the Doc ex- Ock. I love what you're doing here. Not the way I expected it to go. But That's I love funny. what you're doing here. Mm-hmm. Good for you. All <laughs> right. So this is a good time to pivot to something we call mystery friend. You're you're a listener of this program from time to time, or you used to be when Jonah hosted, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, Jonah sounds weirder, uh, and it's weirder that he didn't know about Jaded Punk Hulk just now. Yeah, that is strange. Jonah, are you feeling okay? Jonah, you there? Oh, is that you, Brad? What? <laughs> oh, Brad. Oh, oh, Brad. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, he didn't say anything. <laughs> I thought it was Jonah. <laughs> what if Brad was Jonah all along all in along. the same way that he never admitted or denied that he was Jonah? In the world of Zoom. Sorry. You could be, well, you could be I, anyone you want. I just, I totally derailed. What were you saying, Benny? No, no, we're good. We're good. I love this. Um, so we do do a section of the show called mystery friend where I hit up somebody, you know, and I try to get an embarrassing story. This is this, horrifying. Yeah. This time, <laughs> this I could not get horrible. an embarrassing story. No way. That's fucking, that's ridiculous. I, I just told you how milk made me sick at the beginning of this interview. <laughs> you can find it. About, I would just tell people embarrassing things about me without abandon. I'm working on it. So I hit up, you know, your cover boy. I'm not even going to do the mystery, friend, because it Wait, would be no, impossible. Wait, no, come on. You oh, wanna... my cover. Well, you already told me. Okay. Yeah, I already told you. You would never guess it, so that's why. Yeah, yeah. You know, but, it, you know, I was like, 
but Jeff, of course, he he quickly went to like a serious and actually impactful question, not okay. something totally ridiculous. I'm so afraid right now. Go ahead. Yeah. So Jeff says, I want to know if there is anything that didn't make the book that broke his heart because it was so good. Hmm. I guess, you know what, like the things that I, more than like specific little moments, I'm bummed about uh, bands that I, like I really had to make some Sophie's choices on like which 11 bands I was going to devote 11 chapters to. And there were some ones that I really would have liked to have gotten to. And I'm trying to like get those out in some capacity today. Like I just ran today an interview with Chris from Anti-Flag. Because right, Anti-Flag yeah. did not get a chapter, but Anti-Flag like almost got signed by Rick Rubin. Right. Like that's right. fucking crazy to me. And um, I have some more coming up uh, of those. And I mentioned in the intro of the book, that was kind of like my way of of like giving a little nod to them uh, that I wish that I had Anti-Flag. I wish that I had gotten a Caven because Caven right. was such a, a weird, they're they're career and their sounds that they've been through is is so fascinating to me um i i, I really wanted to get to chumbawamba even yeah um, super cool but yeah. it just didn't like feel like it fit sure. so I, I think like the things that don't fit are not things that i love that got cut but more like the paths not taken you know and did they not did they get cut because you know less people know that band or just no like it was more like i think caven specifically was because you know like the the chapters like it's it's one story like it's 11 chapters but it's really i see it as like one chronological story and ideally i wanted to do like one album that came out every single year and for a while i did that right green day dookie 94 Jawbreaker, Dear You, 95, Jimmy right. World, Static Prevails, 96. Um, I didn't fully commit to that. It like lost it a little bit. Um, but there were just some years, and especially in that like early 2000s era, where specifically DreamWorks um, were, was signing like a lot of bands from yeah. our world. Right. It was just like three albums in one year. And I'm like, well, I can't justify all three. You know, I kind of uh, like right. have to break it up a little bit. So there were some like cave in. A lot of people have asked me about AFI, who I don't oh, know yeah. that much about, but like they probably would have been an interesting one too. Sure. Um, so yeah, it's it's more like those ones that I just couldn't uh, cram into my 450 page book. Interesting. Yeah. And cave had one of those like, I mean, that's one I saw firsthand where I've, I've, maybe never seen like fans at a show, like so visibly angry at the band. Just bored. I remember seeing that, that era of them and just being bored. And like, uh, you know, they they were already such an interesting band because they basically were just this like proto metalcore band, you know, like this hardcore band er era defining sound, you know? Um, And then as soon as they gained a following off of that, they made like this spacey, rock record um which got new fans but certainly alienated a lot of the old fans and i think you could look at that as being like the the birth the birth of like a lot of stuff that's popular now like title fight and a lot of dispute and like a lot of that stuff but then like after they had built up these like two different fan bases right they were like we're gonna try to make this radio rock record for rca (laughs) that nobody ended up liking although i said that the other day and somebody 
argued with me. But I do remember what you're saying of like going to these tours and they would play like Inspire and yeah, everybody would right, kind of be right. snoozing, you know? And it was like, well, either play Jupiter or play until your heart stops or get the fuck off the stage. Well, I you mean, know? it got to the point, right? Like they would not play anything from Until Your Heart Stops. Yeah, and it got, I don't remember what era this was. I think it was like a little bit after Inspire or, or Antenna era like it, it, not actively during the press cycle for that but maybe right. like a year or two later i remember there was a show they were gonna play like they they advertised it as we're gonna play until your heart stops material okay. at the first unitarian church in philly great and me cool. and my friends drove down there you know like drove all the way to philly and they played their whole set and then they were like oh, okay and well, we got something else for you and they were like do no 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 and then they were like oh are you ready they were almost like making jokes about it really and they i think if i'm not mistaken they played the first two songs off of until your heart stops and then that was it oh, man. <laughs> and so i basically drove like 90 minutes to catch like eight minutes of music um and yeah they were well, yeah you're right they just kind of like put that era behind them uh i think also like they couldn't do this vocals anymore right, uh, right you know because right. they had some like i because like who who sang on that record? Was it Brodsky? I think the didn't the the bass player used to do a lot of the screaming. Right? Yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah. And then then he didn't do it. And obviously, right. like he has since unfortunately passed, and yeah. they like can't, physically can't do that with him anymore. Um, right. But uh, yeah, like just such a crazy. And I and I don't get me wrong. Like I appreciate that more now. Like yes. just just get getting really good at something and then being like, well, we've perfected this next, like we're going to do the next thing. I think a lot of it is how you're just expressing the narrative of what you're doing. It's like, yes, you know, it's yes. like if a band like cave in, you know, went to their fans with like more open arms and was like, Hey, like, this is what we're doing. This is how we're moving. This is like what we want to do is like, all right, I would love if you came along and then, every once in a while play one of their old songs because who gives a shit like you know it probably wouldn't have been met with such fury or like some of the bands you mentioned in the book who took really hard stances against you know major labels and like you know kind of blowing their own narrative for them a little bit early on yeah you know, i feel like so much can be dictated in like the presentation to your own fans with this stuff do you think that's well yeah true? I mean, well, I'm going to take that as an opportunity to spin this interview around because another one that, um, you know, I just got, um, I just got interviewed by Andrew at Brooklyn Vegan mm -hmm. and he was like, you know, you mentioned in your book that was that against me was sort of like the last punk band that really got a major label shot. And he was like, but what about Gaslight? Yeah, I and that. I was like, yeah. yeah. I, and you know, the Gaslight's another one on the list that I probably in another universe would have liked to have put on sure. um but to me like i'm sure you remember too like that anti major against me backlash was so strong so big, that yeah. uh it to me just seemed like the logical endpoint of the book and i really don't remember gaslight feeling it that much like did you guys get any of that no i think you're right and and i actually read I, I, I feel saw, like I feel like Laura jumped on the on the grenade for you, you know, I like, mean, a little bit, but, but yeah. also also like, you know, that's where I think we had almost like a cautionary tale, which mm -hmm. was like in the way that, you know, Brian was always a lot smarter about that stuff than me, where um, 
I might have ran my mouth in an interview or something and been like, I'll never fucking sign to me. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I might have done that. Um, and I'm glad I didn't, you know? And But it was always in the cards. There was never, like, we never had a ceiling on it, you know? It was always, like, as big as this thing can get. Like, cool. Um, but in reality, uh, we lost all, like, the punks at 59 Sound. Like, huh. that's when we took shit. That's when we had backlash, um, particularly in Europe and Germany for some reason. Hmm. Um, it was something about the sound more than that. And like what we were doing that kind of alienated, I guess, some like proper punk rocker type kids. That's really interesting. And then we did two more records, you know, on side one. And I think by the time we went to the major, I think everyone kind of assumed we were already on one or like, Mm -hmm. you know. Because your sound sounded like a major label. Yeah, Yeah, and like we were already associated with like Bruce Springsteen and like like this stuff was already happening. So by the time time it happened, I think it was almost like, you know, everyone's utter lack of surprise or they already kind of thought we were already there, you know. That's interesting. Yeah, so so honestly, very little, like very little. Yeah. I heard like some of that within the book too, where, you know, bands that started out on like very, very, you know, DIY roots uh, and then went to fat records. Yeah. It was like, whoa, okay, you're done. You're like a sellout now. And so, Yeah. yeah, by the time they went to the major, it was just like, written off by the people who would write you off anyway for going to fat. That was exactly um, right. And I saw that you had to make that, um, you know, uh, you had to draw that line in the book between what your, like, not every band's major label debut was their sellout record, right? Well, I mean, that was, I, the book was originally called major label debut because uh. I wanted to center it around that first major label record. Um, There are some instances where like, yeah, I went a little um, beyond the playing field of, of that. And like, you know, like um, Blink-182, for example, like uh, technically Dude Ranch is their major label debut. But Enema was the one that just made them like the biggest band in the world. And so the, 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 that chapter like does mostly lead up to Dude Ranch, but then, sort of like concludes on how wild the 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 next record's release was. Right. Cuz I mean there is that whole world. I mean like you know, if you came in an underground enough scene like, you know, against me did or we did or something like, you know, I mean, you literally start to get scoffed at once you even sign to any label. Sure. Once you have a booking and- agent, you know, like like literally once you have anyone working for your band that's not you. Like yeah. that, and, that takes you to the next cusp out of the true DIY scene, you know? And I wondered like about, I'm like, I've always been skeptical of people who didn't put in their time. Like I, I, this was another band that I like kind of had my eye on for the book, but I just truly don't really have an interest in their music, but uh, the used right. because that band, like, from what I could tell, didn't put out anything and then just got signed to a major label. And I'm like, that's fucking sus. Yeah. That's weird. You know, like you're you're telling me you didn't put out any seven inches with like planet X or you never had a fat records period. You never were on no idea. Like what the fuck? Like what, how did you go right to a major? I found that like really suspicious to me. I try Um, not to discredit music that comes from that place or artists that come from that place. I try really hard. Yeah. But I don't always succeed. I got to be. I mean, the word that, the word, the phrase that always comes up when you hear something like that is like industry plant. 
you right, know, right. and like I, you know, I see it with like pop stars who are particularly young and particularly female. But to me, it's just like, well, yeah, I'm like, obviously, it makes sense for somebody to see potential in them and give them a chance. This is like the prime of their, you know, like cool young. They're like cool and young, but like somebody like the used. I mean, I guess it is the same thing, but I'm like, you're a band that didn't do any grinding. Like, yeah. I I don't know, man, that's fucking weird. And then like when MySpace kicked off, mm. um, there were a, a bunch of stories like that where it's like bands that had never toured before, you know, right. or like got had like hundreds of thousands of followers. Just like I, did, I am very like have a jaundiced eye to that. There are, I mean, well, that's something I've discovered through going off track actually in the last like year and a half is – you know, I'd say a lot of the artists under 30 years old that I've spoken to in the last year and a half, the, uh, the things they had to do to get from like A to D are so significantly different from the things we had to do. Like, I, you know, I'll listen, I'll uh, hear a band talking about, oh yeah, and we went on the Warp Tour, but like, we didn't just go on the warp tour. Like we woke up every morning, we hustled our fucking CDs and we, you know, like got out there with signs and listening stations and like did this or like another band will be like, yeah, we did this, but we were like, like you said, huge on MySpace, and we did, and they still had to do some form of work. You know what I mean? Like it took thought, it took hours, it took work. Mm-hmm. And I think it's easy to maybe like in our context be like, if you didn't grind it out on the floor of a van, you know, like, is your story as legitimate? But well, I mean, maybe the I landscape mean, like, of what it takes to get there is changing a little too. I, uh, I'm I, trying to stay self-righteous. Yeah. I mean, like, okay, well, I'll, I'll say righteous, that to, to, one, to one band's credit, like I wanted to have My Chemical Romance in the book right. kind of for that reason. Because to me, um, you know, they, they had done a little bit of, of like groundwork, you know, like real on, you know, touring work. Um but to me, they were they were pioneers in the sense of like giving music away for free and mm. um, and using the internet to their advantage. Right. And so, like they, it's you know, it's might be easy to look at them from afar and just be like, oh, they were handed everything. But like they really did do a lot of work, and they were so smart about right. how to use the internet to their advantage. And then too, you know, like when they went to a major label. I, I, at that time, like I imagine if you'd said like, yeah, I, we want to give our music away for free, you know, in <laughs> right, like 2004, right. they must have like, that must have seemed insane. And right. yet their label was actually very supportive and, uh. and really helped. Um, and it was an interesting thing. Their, their, their strategy with the label was so successful that it was actually um, cited in a business book that I wow. found. Um, how, and was the, it, how was it cited? Uh, it was cited in the sense that like, you know, like basically like when we were growing up in the, in the nineties, right. Um, record labels would be like, here's the band single, right? Like here's basket case. This is the song you're supposed to like (laughs) off of Dookie. Um, but with my chem, um, the label kind of like seeded the song to 
like pure, vo- like my chem songs to like pure volume right. and like absolute punk. And they would see which ones kids liked the most. Oh. And then they would be like, okay, that's the single. Like they would deter, like they let audiences determine what the single was mm-hmm. rather than the other way around. Um, so they were really like crunching numbers to just be like, what, what is connecting with kids? Oh, Helena. Okay. That's the next single. Um, it that's wasn't smart. just like, like, Hey kids, field research. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause you hear so much, um, in the book about like, um, you know, like with Thursday, they pushed, uh, signals over the air as a single and people didn't really like it very much. And like right, right. it flopped and they didn't get to roll out a second single. Same thing with mm. jawbreaker. They did, um, fireman right and That's people right. didn't really like fireman it didn't it played like twice on mtv and that That's was right. it and so once you do that the label does it you know from what i understand like radio seems really like a shadowy entity <laughs> but bizarre. it just seems like it just seems like if you if you're a record label you go to a a, a radio guy this fucking you know they're all like named mario it's usually a guy yeah it's a guy who's like worked he has like his fucking septum is missing because he did so much blow in the 80s and and he just works in radio he's got this Uh, one story about like hanging out with todd rundgren and like yeah yeah so uh yeah you go to him and you're like hey uh, this is our new big band uh we're you're so excited about this here's our first single and if they put it on and it just flops you really can't go back to them and be like okay try us this other single right that's fucking it. Like it's all, you know, the band is done. That happened to so many bands in this book. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, like again with my cam, they like reverse engineered it where they were like, yeah. you tell us what, <laughs> what the right. song It's like that movie phone thing in Seinfeld where he's like, <laughs> why don't you just tell me the name yeah. of the my cam song you would like to hear? <laughs> Tell us the song you'd like us to make a video. <laughs> you for. have selected bullets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. I, you sent me bullets. But that, yeah, I mean, well, one thing that, you know, is interesting in the book is, you know, when you read the stories like this and especially, you know, having some firsthand experience with things like this, you know, even the Green Day one really stood out to me. Just the fact that like this group of kids, you know, from this weird part of California were just like uniquely connected to Larry Livermore, almost like taught to play drums by Larry Livermore and then uh Oh, and Eureka, like the maybe the greatest independent, you know, music venue in like America over the last like, you know, 30 or 40 years just appears at your feet and you have a hookup to this place. Like there's this very unique set of variables that led to that band even having a chance to be discovered or even having a chance to be seen. And I can't help but read that chapter and think about like, how many Billy Joe Armstrongs could be around who never had that access, who didn't have the right charisma or whatever to get to that point. Yeah. And when I think about that and how many variables and musical pieces and how many connections have to be in place to make it happen, like it's so hard to even have a chance to sell out. That, yeah. Are you crazy not to? <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, like you've got to, it, it's like going into a casino and seeing somebody hit the slot machine jackpot. Right. And be like, maybe me too. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's right. just, you happen to see some like crazy lightning in a bottle, like once in a lifetime thing. Um, yeah. And like when you, when you're making, you're making me think of like how many variables worked in green day's favor. Like you said, like, 
being right in the in the heart of this like burgeoning punk scene that had Appa Ivy in it, being on this like having the backing of Larry, uh, doing all this groundwork around the country, and just, and having an album come out right when Kurt Cobain is dead, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, and and just and even just the way they sound, like their influences and like the way they look, like everything was yeah. just exactly perfect. That's right. Um, and yeah, I mean that's why it's a fluke. That I'm not not a fluke. Because I don't want to call it that because right. they are like so talented, of course, um, and hardworking, but like a once you know like just a lightning strike you know yeah i mean you Um, have to recognize that that collection of good fortune and luck that goes into every single one of these stories and i'm sure they did and like from what i understand like at that time they were really confident um which is a a feather in their cap but also you know like they must have in some way (laughs) been like this is fucking nuts (laughs) you know yeah i'm sure yeah, it's also it's, too, you know, like they, they, I cite in, in the book is like that iconic 1994 Woodstock performance as being like really the thing that like put them over the edge to mm. just be, you know, cause after that things accelerated so fast and they originally weren't even supposed to be on that, um, that oh, really? tour. They, an extra day was added and I think Green Day was on like Lollapalooza at that time and they like took a flight from like Atlanta to Woodstock to just to do that oh, and then wow. come back on the tour. So they they like almost didn't, you know, like there was there's another alternate reality where they didn't play their most like iconic performance of their career, you know? Yeah. Just like everything going right, you know? Exactly. Even even like that mud brawl that happened at Woodstock. Right. Like <laughs> if it hadn't rained, like you know, it's like it almost feels like an act of God at this point. Yeah. You know? Um like if it had not rained the night before that morning, like maybe Green Day wouldn't be the biggest band in the world at that. It's just, it's crazy to think about. Yeah. And, and I'm sure, did you, you know, when you're talking to the people on the, uh, the business side of, of the industry while you're putting together the book, do you, do you get the impression, you know, people in that seat have the personal feeling like they know how to do it? Like, like I know exactly which variables to put in this pot to make it work. And that's why I am who I am. Or did they recognize the dumb fucking luck in it too? You know, I think there was like some humbling experiences. Um, This guy, Mark Cates, who was in the book, Uh he helped sign Nirvana. I had to, I have to be clear about that. Like Gary Gers signed Nirvana. Okay. He, he corrected me the other day, but like he, uh, he like, was, on, but, yeah. but when, once Nirvana got to Geffen, he was like their guy, you know, like okay. he was helping yeah, them. Yeah. So he worked closely with Nirvana and then he signed a band called Jawbreaker. Mm-hmm. And when, I've heard Dear, of them. <laughs> yeah. And so then when, you know, Jawbreaker, once they had Dear You, he says this in the book, but he was just like, we were so cocky. And right. at that time, he probably thought that that was a good thing. You know, he's like walking around the office being like, we got the next like great band. Um, but like, I think he learned from that to like, maybe it's not good to like talk your shit up that much because you know, that record didn't take off the way everybody thought it would. And I'm sure that was like humbling. And he said something to me to the effect of like, I learned that like no career is transferable. Um, you can't just be like, oh yeah, these things all work for Nirvana. Let's do that again. Like even, you know, I felt bad doing it, but like Jawbreaker story is so tied to Green Day's story because yeah, right. they really did try to like 
be like, oh, this three piece, this worked for this three piece from right. Berkeley. Well, how about yeah. this three piece from right. Berkeley? And right. they yeah. use the same um, That's right. video director. They use the same pro- album producer. Oh, the really? Same, like, I didn't st- realize yeah. it was that. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Rob Cavallo, same sure. studio, um, same video director. Uh-huh. You know, they really like tried to to sort of go in that track and it just, it just didn't work. Um, I, you know, like time obviously has proven the worth of that record, but yes. um, just being like, oh, you like, this here's another one. It just didn't doesn't work like that. Yeah, that might be the last. You know, I try to think about my own experience with this stuff, and I think the Jawbreaker lesson was the last one I had. You know, where like a few years after that record came out, and I go, oh, 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 we were all really stupid. Well, like, it's funny because you know, I, but I, I had the same thing. I had that that visceral reaction, like I lost. I lost one of my bands, you know? Yeah. I love this band and I lost them. And I get it. I still get why people get that way, you know? It it makes total sense to me. You feel like it's yours, right? It's funny, too, because, like, I feel like... I'm really glad that this book spans so much time because you almost see you know like a generation in 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 rock music is like four or five years it's like micro generations as i call them and it is funny because as time goes by in the book you know after after the like looming specter of dear you fades away into the 90s and we get into the early 2000s i think you have these people who are in bands and who worked at record labels who remember what happened to jawbreaker yeah and they were almost like Oh, we've learned the lesson. Mm. You know, like we learned what went wrong and we can avoid that. Wow. And like that didn't work either. You know, <laughs> right, like right. I think, I think, I think Jeff uh, Rickley said that about Thursday. He was like, well, you know, you, you think you learned the lesson and then once you think that you're fucked. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. Cause you think you got it figured out at that point. Totally. But yeah, it's just always just rolling the dice every time anyway, you know? So what is it like? You mentioned it quickly in the book and I, I thought it was fascinating because I hadn't thought about it like that. The idea that, you know, uh, so many of the kids who get into underground punk will put like a clash sex pistols, Ramones patch or shirt on. And, you know, that's my identifying thing about being like underground and rebellious when all three bands were on major labels. Yeah, Um, for sure. So where, like, you know, between that and green day, like where did people's heads go? Like, why did it well, become so, so, so taboo again between those two points? Right. Well, what you have to remember is that, um, you know, in the 70s when the punk movement was starting and uh, those bands, Sex Pistols, Ramones, Clash, were on major labels, um, it wasn't as much of a factor because, you know, there there were definitely like probably kids doing um, – handmade records on in on a small scale but at, it, we didn't have that like DIY network yet right. that really started in the 80s That's like true. after yeah. after like punk died in the or you know after the after interest in punk died down uh in the late 70s um major labels just moved on right they went to like new wave R&B whatever it was like mm. punk was over so yeah. um but like the that movement had already been started and so like a DIY network really 
started in the 80s with promoters, venues, small record labels, distributors, right. fanzine people. Like the whole and get in the van, black flag. Exactly, era, like, exactly. Yeah, like sure. that That really sure. um, blew up over the 80s. Right. So once, once it came around to like Nirvana in 91, you know, it had been like a decade of... of yeah. Yeah. Of a movement building, like a, 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 you know, like a, you could, you weren't going to make any money, but you could tour the country and put out your own records and you didn't need to touch any of the like big corporate money. Right. Um, and also pre internet. So every one of these cities had their own very unique voice and, you know, unique scene that was coming out of that place, which I guess would lead the people into it to having more of a like feeling of ownership. Yeah. It. I mean, you could do it locally, you know, you yeah. could do it on a national level and, but yeah, so like, w- so we're talking about a decade of groundwork being laid yeah, and you know, people worked very hard. Like you said, it's pre-internet. So there's a lot of phone calls and letters being sent around just to like book tours and, and get records out into the world. And so like when Nirvana blew up, um, that whole, world was at risk and was mined uh by bigger labels and so you know people got really protective over it right and then once green day once like green day went then it sort of like infiltrated punk as well and so it really um people got like knives out about it because they had built this um this thing that was distinctly at theirs and uh people wanted to buy it and so that's why it got so um, the backlash was so strong, you know? I mean, that being said, do you think like something similar could be brewing like right now? Cause to me, you know, there's, you know, besides for whatever is going on with this like emo co-opting shit, like there's not any real like stuff that has to do with actual underground, you know, uh, you know, post-punk or, or, you know, a lot of these scenes that are going on that are kind of still like they're popular, but they're lost to the mainstream, you know, like bands like Joyce Manor or Pup or bands, they're, they draw these huge crowds. They're, they're massively successful bands that have almost culty followings, but they're not, you know, going to that section. I wonder if, uh, if we're in kind of a breeding ground for another one. Maybe, but like it, it does feel like there's a cap on it, you know, like, like how, like Joyce Manor is, is very big in their world. And, um, but like, are they going to get much bigger? Like uh, an interesting one that I thought was, um, and this, I feel like gets forgotten a lot, but maybe what was it? Three years ago or four years ago or something like that. Um, Tiger's Jaw got signed right. to like a major label, yeah. And I think they did one record, and I'm sure it. You know, this is no disrespect to Tiger's Jaw. I'm sure it was not up to the sales uh, expectations <laughs> of a major label, and and I normally I don't isn't. know why, but they moved on. You know, and right. like um, so like I I don't know like is a is a rock band ever gonna like come around like that? I think it's gonna look more like TikTokers and right. Olivia Rodrigo and stuff like that. You know, I just, I, I, a band like Pup, who I am very much on record as loving, like, I do think that there's a, there's a limit to, and also too, if you're Pup, like, uh, you know, this comes up in my book a lot, but you have to, you have to think like, what's in it for me? Mm. Because at this point, Pup is like a, a machine 
that is, you know, like they have their people and it's like a self-sustaining machine, like is a major label going to help them grow that that much? You know, like, what are they going to throw money well, at? I, mean, I don't I, know. I'm not I think a the music big industry guy. There. I mean, just just speaking from an artist who's actually, like, been in similar situations as this, I think the jump there is you're right. It's a machine. You have your thing going. You get to really start to dictate some of your own work, you know, which is, like, the greatest point you could be at. I think the issue with being in a band at that point is you have to tour incessantly to be able to, to be able to manage your life at home. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that is where people start to look for something else. Whereas like, can I make a living being an artist and being home more than like three months out of the year? Cause the way the industry is set up right now, you literally cannot, you know, exist in your own life without touring and selling merch. It's, yeah. It's the only and it, thing. That, it sucks know? too, because they probably could if, you know, it's really funny, like as we're talking about it and I'm going to get lost in explaining this, but it does feel like there is this part of this, this like indie network that we were talking about, like existed in the eighties now where, you know, there are a lot of like small, um, just, uh, non-corporate like booking agents and right. venues and stuff like that. But the thing that sucks is like artists are doing so much work on them on their own that it does feel like very DIY, but there's so many corporate claws in all of it. Right. You know, like a right. band like Pup, they work so hard to like make their tours and their albums themselves. But then they go on tour and they have to give money to fucking right. Live Nation. Exactly. And they have to give money to fucking Spotify. You're well, in they don't it give anyway. money to Spotify. You're in it anyway. yeah. yeah. So like you're making all the this mu- this music and you're touring and like all of these fucking companies have their hand in the pot. Exactly. You know, like Spotify is probably making more off of Pup than they make off of their right. fucking right. like albums. You know, and it just sucks because like a band like Pup, if there was no Spotify and people had to buy the records and there was no Live Nation and people could just give the full money to Pup and if there were no like merch cuts right. and they could just make all their money off right. their t-shirts, Pup could maybe tour a few months out of the year instead of having to do it all fucking year. Exactly. You know, so like uh, not to get on my soapbox, but like it just sucks that we just for no for seemingly no payoff allowed these corporate fucking assholes to come in and 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 you know, get their cut of it. You yeah. know, like it, what, yeah. what was the payoff that we got from <laughs> right. that? Like, well, it doesn't seem the worth whole it. industry. And then, shifted. sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, and please. then there's a pandemic and, right. and yeah. live nation gets a fucking bailout from the exactly. government. Like get fucked. I know. Like let your whole fucking company go under. You weren't getting any money off of it. You know, they had more than enough money to absorb this last year and a half. It's, it's, it's wild. I mean, so much of it, um, has to do with like you're seeing, uh, you know, like the industry changed where record sales don't mean dick anymore. And, you know, the labels are the ones who cried the most about like, you know, their lost, uh, you know, proceeds and the, and the money they're losing from record sales. And now if you look, I mean, literally every one of these major label conglomerations, and I say that meaning it because they all fucking own each other and there's like four of them in one now. They all own a piece Mm -hmm. of Spotify. They all own a piece of Pandora. Like 
the labels found a way to to keep on and actually make more money than they've ever made because the actual listening audience due to digital presentation is larger than it's ever been. Like there's actually more ears listening to music than in like the history of music. Yeah. And these labels were able to yeah, survive what tech. happened and find a new revenue stream. Mm-hmm. And bands and artists are still sitting here making no fucking money off their records. Yeah. So like, it's like they, they figured out a way for themselves and kind of left the artists in the dust. But, you know, in my opinion, what that's going to lead to is like, you know, you, you follow this as closely as anyone. You're seeing like, you know, Bob Dylan sell his entire catalog for like $300 million, like a hedge fund owner. And, you know, now the real uh, asset is in the ownership of the music itself and the mm-hmm. ownership of the publishing. And I think because Yeah, that seems of that, to be the only way people make money is getting is. like a song license and, and stuff. And because, yeah. I mean, bands and artists aren't that dumb. Like they're going to start skipping labels and they thinking, have to. They're yeah. leaving no choice anymore. Like you have to be able to own your music and pay yourself back as quickly as possible now or you're fucked. Um, I thought a lot about Lookout Records when I was um, doing the book, obviously. Right. Yeah, and uh, you know, I was I was trying to do like estimates of math uh, for bands that were on Lookout because um, you know they bands sold if you worked really hard, decent numbers like right. on on Lookout. Not all of them, but like a band like Green Day, I was thinking about them, and they, you know, Lookout famously had like a sixty forty split with artists like okay. a generous 60 percent to artists wow. split yeah. and so like i don't know say a cd in that 1993 cost ten dollars so if green day is getting six dollars <laughs> off of every cd that That's they're insane. selling and at that time they were selling you know like thirty thousand, which is not yeah. like a huge amount now, but like that's a, you know like those are big fucking numbers. And so, if they're getting one hundred and eighty thousand uh, dollars, and then there's three of them, they're each making about sixty thousand dollars a year just off of like one album. I mean, like they were doing pre- in nineteen ninety three money. They were doing pretty fucking well. And just like imagine if that was the case now, where like album sales netted a band that much. But you're right, like incessantly touring is the only way that bands can like cash in off of a, an album release. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's become a, yeah, who knows? We, we could talk about that for that's, <laughs> I guess that's book number three, right? Let's do it. I just, I just <laughs> wrote it. So let's switch out of the bummer part of the music industry a little bit out of all the people you spoke to getting this book together, who was the most intimidating? And who were you like the most afraid to go into it? Uh, I'll I'll fucking tell you right now, Brody from Distillers. Really? I mean, she's I, I like. I was both intimidated, but I was also just like enamored with her in a way. Like mm-hmm. she's a really, uh, she's been through some shit, and she's tough, and um, uh, and she's also like you know like I. <laughs> I always feel like a dick for saying this, but like it, it is worth mentioning. She is like incredibly beautiful. Sure. Um, you know, so she's like talking to you and, and, um, you know, we talked about like some really sensitive subjects about right. divorce and meth and all, you know, sexual violence and, and stuff like that. And she was like very candid with me. 
Um, and uh, yeah, she was like a real, like, she's like an intimidating presence for sure, mm. you know? And how did you get, uh, did you have to like, did you meet in person? Was that one a call? Or? No, it was a fuck. Yeah, that was post pandemic. So it was a fucking Zoom or whatever, oh, like a FaceTime or whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, it does but sound even terrifying, still, Zooming with Brody. <laughs> yeah, it's funny too because like I actually it was a Zoom and Zoom like records the video and I was like going back and just like watching the video and I'm like, yeah, I can see why she's into. I mean, like, I feel like I held it together, <laughs> but I'm like not so scared. But she's just, you know, like she's just like a pretty tough woman yeah, <laughs> and sure. I was just like you know um that was intimidating yeah. also too like not he is not an intimidating person whatsoever um but I was just like very and this was one of the only other like um high profile zooms that I had to do like facetimes uh-huh. was um Cedric from at the drive-in oh, sure just because I find him to be like a ghost almost mm. you know like it was like kind mm. of weirdly tough to track him down uh like a friend had to do a favor yeah, for sort of like, like ask a, a mystical favor. mystical character yeah and yeah. also too he's had all this shit with um Scientologists uh, um, coming after him, so he's very like guarded about his privacy. Totally understand that, um, and uh, yeah, and that was another guy too where I knew talking to him, I'm like, well, we're gonna have to talk about a lot of like drug use and stuff, and right. that's a sensitive subject sometimes to 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 encroach. Um, but I all but for the record, I found him like very nice, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, like, uh, I was still like weirdly intimidated, but like very nice guy. Nice to talk to. Sure. Yeah. I was, I, I understand that. That's, it seems like, uh, you know, when you're, when you're going into an interview like that and you know, you have to, you know, get to something, you know, is going to be uncomfortable. Like, do, do, do you pull the bandaid? Do you butter up first? Do you let it happen naturally? Do you have like a tactic? You know you know what's so funny? I I think of you a lot in what? this context, and I I hope you take this as a compliment huh. and not an insult. Please. But I will just be like, if I ever mention it, I'll be like, you know, Benny doesn't come from like a journalistic background. Benny is a ball busting uh, New Jersey guy, <laughs> and so he he sometimes just lacks tact. Yeah. And I think that's like a, a a technique. Like Howard Stern has been doing some form of that for like thirty fucking years, it's right? True. Where he's just like. You know, you ever, when was the first time you kissed another woman? You know, and right, just like, right. whoa, okay. Um, but like, I try to. I can to... only get away with it because <laughs> of the lack of a journalistic background. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but I try to like, I often worry if I like go too soon, too hard on that. Right. Like, the person's going to like recoil for the rest of the interview. Yeah. yeah so sure. I feel like any time that I've had to talk about a big subject, whether it's like death or drug use or whatever. Um, obviously, like I definitely do not front load that. I yeah, sure. let us have some rapport first and then I'll, when I'm feeling comfortable, I will, you know, go into that topic. But, you know, honestly, something sometimes, sometimes something so, so simple is just like, Hey, you know, like uh, this is a really difficult thing to ask, but um, how did it feel like when you got a divorce or something like that? Like just to let the person know that you're not a complete sociopathic Showing piece of shit. Some humanity, like going yeah, totally. It, yeah, or even sure. like you know, some people have talked about this. Like I don't know if this works for everybody, um, but if you can even like. This this is a fine line to 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 walk. I don't think I always do this, but like 
you know, say if I had been divorced or something like that, mm-hmm. and I wanted to talk to Brody about her divorce, maybe I would just encroach it, just be like, you know, when I got a divorce, I remember it being like really hard on my, right. my parents took it really hard. Sure. Was it for you? You know, like just, just something to just show that like you're talking to another person who maybe has similar experiences. Sure. Um, but yeah, like I just, I just like, you, you, nobody wants to do an interview feeling like it's like, Oh, how are they going to use this against me? Right. So just like any sure. empathy that you can show, I think goes a long way. Yeah, I could see that. And I, and I think that's even, I don't take offense to what you said. I actually like, I actually think it's pretty cool. Um, but I think you can only do that too. If you're honest about your own experiences, I think one of the reasons I can get away with shit is cause like my experiences are wide open you know, Mm -hmm. for anyone. And I'll leave myself to be vulnerable. And I've fucked up a million times. And I went through like a lot of shit when I was younger with fam, like with everything. So, and I think too, that people know that like you coming from like a band background, you know, like whatever they say in the context of like a musician's career, they're probably talking to somebody who will on some level understand where they're coming from. Right. Right. That's true. But yeah, I don't. It's, I don't it's a technique. To it. it is. Yeah. <laughs> Good. It is, it is, no, I think it's kind of funny actually. I, I I've listen. I'm not the classiest, most tactful guy. I never have been. <laughs> it's not my strong suit. Um, and I freak people out. I actually just had this with Jeff Rickley when we were Did going get, through this. Mm. I just text things the way I talk, <laughs> and I've just been freaking people out for like a decade now, and I'm kind of. <laughs> Just starting to understand it. Even my wife had to tell me the other day, she's like, listen, sometimes when you write, you just sound like a dick on text. Like <laughs> you just do. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, and I get it. Cause when I'm around someone, I'll tap a shoulder. They'll see a sly smile, mm-hmm. something to know I'm fucking with you, you know? And then I'll read back text sometimes. I'm like, oh, Jesus. Like, they have no inclination that I'm fucking with them. It's just, I just yeah, sound like yeah. an asshole. Well, it's, yeah. you got to remember, it's like, you know, they say, what did they used to say? That, like, TV added 15 pounds to you or whatever. You got to <laughs> right. realize that, like, all social media adds, like, 20% of aggro to, to right. More dryness. Yeah. Like, less, yeah. less, yeah. I feel like my lack of, like, emojis... And contractions. Yeah, maybe that's what you, you know. It's do. just throw, like because I write throw normally. the uh, cry laughing emoji yeah, exactly. in there, just so people know <laughs> that you're. I need to use some more immature stuff. Um, well, this is something funny. I want to get your take on. There was a quote in here by, um, I believe, Omar uh, from mm-hmm. to drive in. No, it would have been Cedric. It was probably. Oh, okay, and it was a quote. Well, it was a quote from a show, and uh, he oh. was on stage, and he was uh, upset about people, you know, dancing. And he said, you know, if you guys want to do that karate kicking shit, if you beat Mm -hmm. the shit out of each other, please don't do it at our show. I think it's about 20 years into the so-called punk movement where we need to reinvent it. Slam dancing and the bastardized term mosh doesn't exist with us. Now, I'm just curious what you think about that because I've thought about it a lot too. Like, you know, you've been going to shows for ages and you watched moshing and stage diving kind of be commoditized in the early 2000s like do you think it's time to move on 
You know, I, like I, again, what we were talking about before, just like trying to have some empathy from where somebody's coming from. Right. Uh, not that I like want to empathize with the guys who are just like beating the shit out of people. Um, but just putting myself in their shoes. Say I'm like just getting into heavier music. I'm not like very experienced. I'm, a, I'm like 18 or whatever. And I'm going to go see this band at the drive-in. You know, and mm-hmm. I've seen moshing on TV. I've seen like Pearl Jam videos, whatever. Right. And you go to uh, an at the drive-in show and the two guys on stage are fucking lunatics, like right, hanging insane. off the, yeah, right. hanging off the rafters, sure. like literally like bouncing off the walls. And then, you know, you are like, okay, well, I'm going to match this energy and I'm going to fucking swing my arms around and whatever. And then all of a sudden the guy's like yelling at you, like, don't do that. I, you know, like just to, just to like have some sympathy for, uh, people, like, I can get how that could be confusing for like a newcomer. I'm sure you know too. Like, I feel like, dude, the first shows that I went to at the joint, I would just like, I feel like the, the first like five, I was just like a, observer and I didn't move and I didn't yes. say anything to anybody because yes. I felt like there was a hierarchy yep. and there was just like I didn't want to fucking like upset like yeah taint the water you know I so know I was exactly just like I about. just yeah. watched I didn't want to fucking mess yep. up the chemistry here and so uh but like I I feel like I can't think of specific examples but I feel like there were moments in my life where I went to shows as a as a young person and maybe did the thing that was not the etiquette, you know, like right. I didn't do the right etiquette. Mm-hmm. I remember one time, man, you, you would probably understand this. I was watching some like very emotional hardcore band. Right. And, um, this guy, Scott, who was like heavily tattooed, he wasn't even in the band. He was just like a fucking observe, like a, a fan, you know, uh-huh. he just like during their set, he just like sat on the floor and was just like punching the floor like there was like this like really like dude emotional like you yeah. know like rage oh, moment right. and i remember just like tapping my friend and be like what's his deal what's what's that all about <laughs> and my friend was just like oh yeah don't worry about it don't worry about it and i was just like what's going <laughs> on like what the fuck is this so yeah like if i had seen omar and cedric yeah. just bounding off the walls and sure. i might have i might have not knowing better done that too i don't know you know right right or like yeah if if you and i was like my first show I might have thought like you should just cry at the end of every set with the band. But, or but but the thing about you you and I is an interesting example cuz like you could go to a you and I show and say this is your first experience with that kind of music. Yeah. You could watch their first song and be like, "Oh, fuck yeah, I'm ready to be angry. Like mm. I'm ready to be a fucking rage right, monster right, right, lunatic." Right, right. But then like, they're we're like all between going on this thing together. Yeah, we're right. all going the fuck off tonight, right. you know. Sure. But then like you listen to them between songs and they're like, "Um, <laughs> that song is about how at my freshman year of Rutgers, I witnessed a microaggression where somebody didn't, they said kill themselves. And I thought that that was very offensive, you know, and you're just like, you might not like pick up on the subtleties of like rage, rage filled yeah. music does not necessarily equate, equate with like rage filled yeah. persona. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's, it was definitely, it was a learning curve for me. Like some of the first shows that I saw were like emotional hardcore bands. Yeah. And I had to like understand that like this is, you know, like you mentioned CR before. Yeah. CR stands for compassionate revolution. That's right. And that to me is why that band changed my fucking life. I understood that you can be angry right. about being compassionate. You know, like you it's can true. be angry because you're 
so mad about the way people are being treated in the world that you want to be a source of like strength and like, uh, you know, just be against the things that you, uh, see unfit in society, you know, a shout, shout out to Brian fallacy and CR. Cause I'm the same as you. I remember hearing a fallacy song in like 1996 that was mm-hmm. about domestic violence. They, yeah. And that's, I think about that song all the time, dude, because yeah. that, that song like was, you know, I, I feel like I talked about this that's recently, but you say you can never walk the streets alone, but why? But why? Yeah, yeah. And he has yeah, such yeah. a thick Italian accent. Right. And so I just, fucking Staten Island. in, in hindsight, I just admire his approach so much because yeah. you could be a little wimpy emo kid. Uh-huh. And be singing things like that against domestic violence and all this stuff. And your tough guy uncles on Staten Island are going to be like, what are you fucking gay or something? You know, and <laughs> right. like, you know, it's right. you're not speaking their language. But Brian was a guy who worked at the telephone company. He was fucking ripped. He was a cool guy. He had a thick accent. And proper he was New like, Yorker. Like, he was a proper, he was a fucking lunch pail guy. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. And he but then when he got on stage, he would sing songs about how women should be allowed to walk home uh, at night without being like catcalled and assaulted. And so like, to me, that's putting uh, water where the fire is. Mm. Uh, So I just like, in hindsight, just have so much more even respect than I already did for that guy for just being like a thorn, a friendly thorn in the side of society of uh, Staten Island, you know? Right. Right. I think to me, when I think about people like that, it's about, uh, you know, it's like when I used to go, I used to play a place in uh, in Birmingham, Alabama called Cave Nine. And I remember being down there and hanging out with the people who ran this festival or uh, ran this venue and all these great bands in the neighborhood it was in. And I'm like, fuck, like, it is so much harder to be like what I am in Birmingham yeah. than it is, you know, 15 minutes, uh, you know, East of New Brunswick, where I grew up, like this is harder. And like for a, someone like yeah. Brian in the early nineties to be like taking, I can't imagine the kind of scene and people he was surrounded in and still taking that chance. You know, there's a great uh, line in uh, the book from Brendan Kelly. Yeah, and when he was talking about Rise Against, because when Rise Against got more popular on, particularly on the radio, they would go to these like red state and military base type towns and they would play and say, fuck the government and fuck George Bush. Right. And you know, it would cause a visceral reaction. And, and Brendan said something like that. He's like, if you want to be a punk band making a difference, that's where you go do it at the fucking Omaha twisted Christmas or whatever, you know, you play there and you're not just like preaching to the choir anymore. You're preaching to people who are fucking pissed off at you. Um, So Rise Against was honestly a band that I did not know that much about before I started this book. And I came out with it uh, of it with a lot more respect for them for the same reason I respect Brian. Like they could have just kept playing the Warped Tour and saying, fuck George Bush and everybody would have clapped for them. But they went to fucking Birmingham and they played the fucking jingle jam, you know, and like people were pissed off at them. It definitely always stayed committed to caring about it. I mean, I I remember the first time we, you know, we toured with Rise Against. I mean, they were at like the peak of their powers, you know, like Mm. playing you know, half arenas on that tour. Like they were fucking huge at that time. And the entire tour, there was a PETA table that, yeah. you know, toured with the group, set up the fucking, you know, the gnarly vivisection videos, like right in front. 
And I mean, these poor kids were like, they were getting slammed by fucking jocks walking into Rise Against shows because they heard some song they liked the mosh to on the radio. And, you know, but I always respected the fact that Rise like never, never folded on that. And I think along the way, probably one out of 10 of them, they really got through to. And that makes yeah, that's that, fucking that's- worth it, right? That's exactly what the chapter about them is about. And yeah, you're totally right. I, I remember Jeremy from Touche was saying the same thing. Like when they toured with them, there was another, yeah, there was a table that was like, you know, pita or food, not bombs or whatever it was, you know? And, uh, before like a show, Jeremy was talking to them like, Hey, like, how do you guys just curious? Like, how do you make money to do this tour? Mm-hmm. And they were like, Oh, we'll rise against pays for our right. way. Like that's so like it's so important to rise against that they're willing to take money out of there. Like they didn't have to do that, you know. Sure. And they but they want to bring that same experience that you and I had of going to to a table at a DIY space, and they want to bring it to a, like a half arena, yeah. you know. Like just because you're at a big show doesn't mean you also can't get fanzines and and sure. like pamphlets and literature. So now that you've looked into this so deeply, like you know, for for a band that has you know, a, le- a left of message or a left of center message, you know, like someone who's a little off the mainstream and trying to, to push a conversation. Like, do you think, you know, after all this, the bands that, that made the jump and continue to do it that way, got through to more people than the people who did not. Um, yeah, I do I think that they like do I think that it was worth it even if it commercially didn't do well? I mean, well, I guess you? I guess it's a broad question. So let's like pinpoint it to the band we were just talking about. Like mm-hmm. like say Rise Against never jumped to a major and they stayed with large indies and continued their message hardcore the same way they do, would they have functionally like affected as many people or changed as many people you think? Oh yeah. Like unquestionably they would not have like, you know, you know, man, like I, it's funny because I forget how big rise against is because they're just very approachable, normal guys. I I went on that tour thinking they were like strike anywhere still. I had no idea, (laughs) (laughs) but they're, yeah, they're, I, I, the last time I saw them was in Chicago and they were the headliners of riot fest. Right. You know, like the last day headline as big as like nine inch nails was, you know, they're fucking huge. Um, uh, but you know, they're just like such normal guys that you forget that. But, um, but yeah, like they, they probably sparked like countless uh, political awakenings for people, right. you know? And like, there's something just so like immeasurable about that. Like, yeah, you could be like, oh, okay, well, these records of theirs have gone gold, but what, you know, you know how many they've sold, but like, there's probably like a kid who just saw them and then like either started a punk band or like right. became vegan or like right. whatever it is, like, they're, that's what I think that they're most invested in. If I had to guess, they're like impact, you know? I think so. Yeah, I think that's true. So I want to go back to what, what Omar said on stage. When is the first time you staged dove? And what's the last time you staged dove? Man, I'm not, I've never been a stage diver. Never did it. Never broke the seal about what? I think you and I have talked about this actually. <laughs> And 
the really like the first and last time that I can really even remember <laughs> yeah. was years and years ago when I threw that like secret um saves a day show like they were just going to play through being cool oh yeah and i it was at vitus and i remember i don't even know why but i kind of found myself on the stage and my body just told me to do a flip okay and i i was carried like five feet but then like just totally dropped on my back and i remember like um you know you you know when you do something really embarrassing but you don't want anybody to know that you're like oh it's fine i remember like hitting my back and getting the wind knocked straight out of me like i fell like five feet and i got up and somebody's like are you okay and i was like oh fine and and i like realized in that moment that i was not fine but i just like had to play it off like i was so i just jumped back in um so i was never like a big stage diver but that's that's the last one that i remember and might be the last one that i'll First and last, the one flip yeah. that saves the Never day. Never a stage ever. I used to. Don't get me wrong. I used to be, especially with. Um, there were a certain number of bands that I would see every time they came through. Yeah, and I would be the first person on this at the stage, like Hot Water Music. When they would play, I would be the first person up there, and I would be screaming the lyrics like Avail, you know, certainly like. Okay screaming lyrics back at them, like trying to like get the mic and stuff like that. Wow. I just never really had the urge to be like, I'm going to get on stage and then jump off. Of you were it, in you the know? mic pile. Yeah, I was in the mic. I was, yeah. a, I wanted to, I'm a words man, yeah. Benny, you know this. <laughs> I wanted to get those words out. And I was the exact opposite. And you know why? Cause I am so bad with lyrics that I was, <laughs> you, the, you're a drummer. Oh you wanted God, to hit dude. people with your body. I was you wanted so to, yeah. badly the, like if you put a mic in my face, 100% I would fuck up the lyrics. <laughs> so I just stopped doing it. I was like, I'll hit, I'll jump on the pile in the chorus. I'm certain of those five words. But besides for that, I'm back here just jumping around. <laughs> I love the idea of like minor threat just being like, we're just, and they just point it to you and you're just like, uh, stage dive. <laughs> I'm out of here. Yeah, let's get out of here. Uh, well, Dan, I didn't realize I've had you for an hour and 45 minutes already. Could do it forever, buddy. Classic, Let's go another hour 40. Classic going off track. That was We went off track. That was fun, man. That was so great. I really enjoyed it. You're such a fun guy to talk to. I wish I mean, we've only had one casual lunch in the in the entire time we've known each other. Let's get another one. Well, next time I'm in LA. All coming, right, anytime. You coming back to the good land anytime soon? Yeah, well, I'm going to be uh, at Vitus again, not stage right. diving. I'm yeah. just, if somebody stage dives at my book event, I will give them a free book. Yes. <laughs> the, 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 the person who does that, I'll give them a free book. But yeah, no, I'm going to be back. I haven't been back in two years because of fucking, you know, sure. everything going yeah. on. Um, but November 6th, I'll be at Vitus uh, doing a book event with Jeff Rickley, actually. Nice. Um, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, what? If you're coming back to Staten Island to visit, is there a place you have to go eat? Is there like the no, best Italian I, restaurant in Staten Island? There's that you not. Know about? I go I go anywhere and get a bacon, egg, and cheese for no. breakfast and pizza for lunch or dinner because like you can just go anywhere in Staten Island and get that and yes. it's amazing. They don't have that here. They'll have like one place and yeah. it's like expensive and it's like, yeah, I guess that's pretty good bacon, egg, and cheese, but it's not really like, like yeah. you could get this any street corner in Why New York. Why is there a fucking avocado on it? Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kind of like what taco, like tacos and burritos are in New York. Right. Like you could have like the best burrito place in Manhattan and you're just like, yeah, but this is just like any place in LA. Right. That's true. You know, it's kind of like that. So no, I'm going to just 
the last time I was there, I was at my parents' house and I just woke up one morning and just like instinctively walked to the bodega and got a bacon, egg and cheese. Perfect. It wasn't even like, I just like, yeah, I just, I'm here. I'm going to get, I feel it in my bones. I'm going to, I need a bacon, egg and cheese. Yeah. Right. So right back I will to the be, old stop. I will be having one every day. Last time I, I rated them on my Instagram. So if anybody <laughs> wants to follow me on Instagram, I will be live reviewing bacon, egg and cheese. What are we, all right. Just give me, you know, I'm a sandwich man. So I just have to know, are we doing, we're doing hard roll, right? No, I'll do plain bagel. Plain do, bagel. I, I, okay. Hard roll. It Little depends. Carby. The thing, the thing about like uh, roll is sometimes you get too much bread. I think burgers, bacon, oh. egg, and cheese, anything. The quickest way to go wrong is to have the bread to the meat ratio all fucked up. For sure. You ever eat a burger that's like on one of those huge yes. rolls, oh, and you're just terrible. like, I'm just terrible. eating bread. Yes. This fucking yes. sucks. Uh-huh. Um, so that's why I, sometimes I'm a little bit, but usually bodegas know like how much constitutes or in a roll. Bodega knows how to do that. Yeah. Now you go salt, pepper, ketchup. I'll do salt and pepper. I don't like ketchup. I'll do hot sauce. I'll do like Cholula sauce, maybe. Okay. Okay. I'm a little thrown off by the bagel thing. Why plain bagel? I, I it's good, but I feel like the classic, the classics of Kaiser. <laughs> I would love for yeah. people to kind of to to right in about that i'll i'll do it you yeah. know i'll i'll mix it up while i'm there i remember when i was a kid like when i was like old enough like when i was in 13 or whatever and yeah. i was like old enough to just go me and my friends ride our bikes to the bodega i got the most insane fucking order and like looking back on it now i feel like doing it one time would kill me and i used to what do it like it? every day what was it i used to go to the bodega and get just bacon uh-huh. on a salt bagel Oh, okay. And salt bagels in New York, they like are covered in salt. salt. And so just like a salt bagel with bacon, like it's amazing I'm alive (laughs) right now. Like you're like Burgess Meredith and grumpier old men. (laughs) Just what an insane like I must be indestructible if that's what I did from ages like thirteen to sixteen. Oh dad, you know, I were I spent those same years working at delis. Mm -hmm. I mean it's one of the reasons I have such a, you know, affinity for these sandwiches, but yeah, I've seen a lot of people like you, man. It's a fucking art. <laughs> it it's is. a fucking art making those. That's why, like, when I walk into a place and I see some skinny, like, young, like, a high school kid behind the grill, I'm like, oh, fuck that. I'm getting a buttered roll. He doesn't know how to mm. do it. He doesn't know how to do it. Put You have little faith, man. You got to <laughs> give this give this kid a chance. No, I see this, <laughs> this white-ass kid with his white-ass bread. I'm like, get out of here with that shit. It's going to be tasteless egg and cheese. Terrible. A Kaiser roll? Is that like a regular roll? And you're like, oh, you know what, dude? Go back you're to not fucking out Pizza Hut, kid. This is bullshit. <laughs> you're not going out for this, my friend. All right, Dan. We should go. Oh, thanks for having me, bud. Yeah, this was fun. I really enjoyed the chat. Me too. Ah, I'm not bullshitting when I say that I am going to read that book. I haven't read it yet. I didn't get an advanced copy like you, so. Oh, I'm sorry. I, you know what? I should have had it sent to you. That's it's okay. My fault. Send I'm me sorry. yours when you're done, and because I, I do really want to read it. But I have cool. like f- three books going right now, so I don't need I to love do it passing right away. down books. It's yeah. the best. Yeah, the best. So, Brad, we have a Patreon still. Hmm. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode and you have an interest in uh, 
supporting our program with our limited costs and keeping us afloat and joining our weekly fireside chat on Thursday night, in which I'm pretty sure Brad is doing in various layers of silk. (laughs) I think there's robes. (laughs) <laughs> there's ascots, there's sifters, uh, there's you mean snifter? Rug. Did you say sifter or snifter? Sniffer, sniffer. I meant. Wait, what is it? Snifters, <laughs> sifters, both. Neither one you of us knows. Sifter. Neither one of us has need a fucking sifter clue. to mull your drinks <laughs> to put them in to the snifter or the chalice. Let's just say a chalice. You know, I. I I love this image you have. I will say that with the cold weather coming on, I do need to go get a good bottle of cognac because I do enjoy (laughs) cognac and I will not deny it. Like when the weather's cold and you just want that one little thing, like after dinner, you're not going crazy. It hits. You got a, you got a uh, recommendation for cognac. I just usually get a, a, what do you call it? The um, The crown Royal. No, not crown Crown Royal. It's not cognac. No. Yeah. Covassier, that's it. Covassier. I forgot Hennessy was cognac. Yeah, Hennessy. I've definitely uh, like pretended I was in Nas New York state of mind a couple times and and drank some Hennessy to just try to be cool, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. What'd you think? Actually, I heard a funny story. Quick story. I know we're like 17 hours into this, but there's a... uh, football player named Marshawn Lynch who was hilarious when he played. Actually, people hated him when he played because he would uh he wouldn't do like post-game interviews. He would just sit at the podium and he like wouldn't answer just one-word things. Right. People kind of thought he was an asshole at first, but over the years he really became kind of like a fun eccentric guy and he was interviewed in Peyton Manning's show. You know, Peyton Manning's the most like squeaky clean motherfucker. Right. Ever. And he's like, you know, so would you be getting ready for a game? Like, what was your pregame ritual? You know, mine was reading like the pregame program from whatever stadium I was at. That's what Peyton Manning says. <laughs> and and Marshawn Lynch goes, you know what? I would have like one, maybe two shots of liquor. Before I go on, and Peyton Manning's like, "What?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." He's like, "Did you have like you know someone bring it to you or something?" He's like, "No, like in my backpack." <laughs> and and he's like, "Oh, what would you drink?" And he looked at him like he was crazy. He's just like Hennessy, you know, like like there was no other option. It's one of the funniest fucking things I've ever seen. That guy got crowned into like my Mount Rushmore after that. My short list of the people I want to have a a round table with where we smoke blunts and play poker, you know? And drink Henny. And drink Henny, yeah. So Marshawn Lynch, if you happen to be listening to the Dan Ozzy episode of Going Off Track. <laughs> the very end of it. About three hours and 45 minutes in and you hear this, I'd love to hang out with you and have a drink. Uh, my My treat, you know? Yeah, hang out with Benny. He's worth it. So all that being said, that was for the Patreon. I was still on the <laughs> Patreon. That's our Patreon read right there. Professional. Patreon.com slash going off track. Check it out. You can also just shoot us a tip on Venmo at off track. Um, and you can give us a, a beautiful review uh, on Apple 
podcasts or wherever and you want. If you're given that review, you can kind of illustrate what's about to happen after we shut this <laughs> off, which is Brad slowly <laughs> and methodically making his way to the hallway, uh, taking off his clothes piece by piece. The door creaks to the bathroom and a warm bath is waiting with lavender and salts and smooth music playing from the likes of Al Jarreau. Mm -mm. Sell out. Sell out is Dan Ozzy's book. Get the book. Dan's got easy socials at Dan Ozzy on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the book. It's it's worth it. And yeah, um, thanks for listening this long, and we'll see you next week. 